God's Word says this, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather had grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd, touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments... I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were there with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. This is my favorite part of the story. And he told them to give her something to eat. I could use a little something to eat right now. Today, uh, church, let me warn you, today's going to be a little bit more on the teachy end than the preachy end. You guys okay with that? All right, we come to the second of what we will call Mark sandwiches. Fitting, right? Food. The second of Mark sandwiches in Mark's gospel. What in the world is a Mark sandwich? It's a technique that Mark used in his gospel in couching the guiding truth of the story in another story. It's wrapped up. It's almost kind of like a burrito, right? And that middle story guides us in interpreting the outer story. It is the truth coming through. There is much to be learned from the sandwich in the middle, from the woman. Jesus is going to teach based off of this, what this woman has done, her approach He's sandwiching one story within another in order to drive home the point. And in this case, Jesus uses a nameless, 
afflicted woman to teach Jairus, the synagogue leader, about faith. She's the flavor in the Mark sandwich. It's like one day a week, my mom, for lunch, I usually got bologna and like cheese sandwiches, right? But one day a week, I'd get peanut butter and jelly. And you knew you got peanut butter and jelly when you opened up the lunchbox and it had been sitting in there a while. And you know when the jelly kind of starts to seep through the bread a little bit? That's the tasty part of the sandwich, right? It's your favorite thing. It's not the white bread or the wheat bread. It's that sweet peanut butter and jelly in the middle. You see, the background behind the story this morning is imperative to correct interpretation. We can't just look at this as a surface level healing. It leads to incorrect interpretation of the passage. We have to understand what all is going on behind the scenes, and we have to understand what's going on within the historical context. Again, that's why this is going to be a little bit more teachy. And then we may get preachy at the end. If we don't understand the background, we miss the point of Jesus' healing, teaching, and power. It's not that our faith will heal us of any and all suffering. Okay, There were many who were around Jesus that were not healed. Uh, People died during the ministry of Jesus, and he didn't raise them from the dead. Even the Apostle Paul cried out for healing uh, for a thorn that he said he had in his flesh, and he wasn't healed of that affliction. So it is not that our faith will heal us of any affliction, but rather that Jesus makes that which is impure, those who are impure, those who are unclean, he makes them as pure as snow. He cleans them up. But where does impurity or unclean come into play in this story? That's why background is so important. It's the background of our story. A summary of the Levitical law is found in Numbers 5. If you want to follow along on the the screen. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of camp everyone who is leprous. Is there anybody leprous in this particular story? No, we don't check that box. Next one. Or has a discharge? Anybody that checks that box? The answer is yes. Yes. And everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. Is there a dead person in this story eventually? Yes. So we have two of those things. And what's the command? That they be put outside because of the impurity, because of the unclean. In a nutshell, there is one unclean woman in the story and a girl who becomes unclean. She dies. Go back and also read, I'd encourage you this week, read Leviticus 15, 25 to 30. Leviticus 15, 25 to 30. And Numbers 19, 11 to 13 will give you a little bit more background about uh, these laws that pertain to the people in this passage. Moreover, the woman teaches us an important lesson. And this is why background is so important to interpreting a passage properly. This isn't just some passage, not some a portion of scripture to be twisted about if you only have enough faith, you can get these things. God can fix all your problems. God can give you more money. God will heal every single disease that you have. Because here's the bottom line. God has a purpose for some of those things in your life. God has a purpose for healing and God has a purpose for choosing to not heal. And they all bring him much glory and sanctify us. You see, not all of us are, are going to witness physical healing, and I haven't met anybody that can raise somebody from the dead other than my Savior, Jesus Christ. 
but rather here, it's about Jesus giving power to the powerless. Jesus giving power to the powerless. The woman, unnamed in the story, unlike Jairus, the synagogue leader, and yet the woman, a person with no power in her life, is going to be Jesus' instrument of teaching on faith. This is remarkable. This is remarkable in this historical context that an unnamed woman afflicted and unclean, according to the Levitical law, that Jesus is going to use her as an instrument of teaching. The other thing that's remarkable is that in Mark's gospel, that this story is not twisted. It's told exactly the way that it happens. Because again, if we, if we look at the, his, the history behind this passage, women in this era were second-class citizens. And yet Jesus, what, heals the unnamed woman and uses her as a lesson for a prestigious man. Isn't that amazing? That's remarkable what Jesus does there. And it's remarkable that Mark includes it in his gospel. I think it speaks to the truth of God's word. That the human authors of the Bible would not twist this story to make it culturally relevant, but they told it as is. It's remarkable. The implications of this this woman's ailment are this, complete isolation. You think your quarantine over the last three months has been bad? This lady's been quarantined for 12 years because of her affliction. 12 years. She's had a, a condition that keeps her from attending synagogue let alone making the pilgrimage of the temple in Jerusalem for worship. She is separated from people, lest she make them unclean. She's not likely to be married. That would have been very important in in that day and age. If she was married, she was probably divorced because her husband left her because she was unclean. She wouldn't have been able to have children. Everything that this woman would have prized in this cultural context has been ripped from her by a body that doesn't function correctly. Moreover, she put her hope, God's Word says this, she put her hope in human doctors to fix her condition, but what happened? She's worse off. She hasn't found the answers from the world. Everybody around her has let her down, and she's unclean and isolated. Desperate. She's completely and utterly powerless, which brings us to our main idea this morning. Our main idea is this, faith, belief, trust in Jesus grants the power of God to those who are powerless. Faith in Jesus grants the power of God to those who are powerless. These two situations present people who are hopeless helpless, and the recipients of Jesus' grace and mercy, they are powerless in this situation. If you can't identify with one of these two characters, I, I don't have anything for you. I identify with these people, a place of hopelessness and powerlessness where you come to Jesus, you're the only answer that I have. Faith, belief, trust, And Jesus grants the power of God to those who are powerless. 
Our first point this morning, powerless. Powerless. Two situations of of powerlessness, two massively different groups of people, both being helped by Jesus. Jairus, seemingly in good standing, a respected leader in the community, he's given a name in the story. He's a man in a time and age where being a man significantly impacted what you could and could not do. Yet he is what? Powerless. We have to assume this daughter that he loved, he's gone to every extent possible to fix her and save her and help her with her ailment. Yet has he succeeded? Has he succeeded? No. He's powerless. A woman with discharge for 12 years, alienated, alone, broke financially, powerless. They both come to Jesus. Let's pick up the story, Mark 5, 22 to 24. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him. The woman, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather what had grew worse. Nothing worked. We can imagine that Jairus, again, had done everything humanly possible to restore his daughter's health. And yet she's at death's door. Moreover, they put everything on the line coming to Jesus. He, Jairus put everything on the line coming to Jesus. We've learned of the skepticism and outright hatred towards Jesus' ministry among the Jewish elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. They hated Jesus. And yet a synagogue leader, what is coming to Jesus for help? Because he is desperate. He's at the end of his rope. He's powerless Why would uh, Jairus risk all of his worldly prestige and reputation to seek out Jesus? Again, because he was powerless apart from Christ. Jesus was his only hope, his last resort. There's nothing left except to fall at the feet of Jesus. Can anybody relate to that? Have you been there? The woman in desperation, goes to a place she should not be. She should not be among the crowd. She should be separated away. And yet, I love the language. You can see her crawling through the crowd because she believes that if she just touches the garment of Christ, that her affliction will be removed, that she will be healed. She believed that. That she was willing to risk everything to get to Jesus, to crawl through a crowd, to make all of them unclean, to touch people, to work through, to not even face Jesus, but to just touch Him. Just touch Him. This is what powerlessness looks like. Of nowhere else to go, no one else to fix me. All of the world has let me down. Can I get an amen? All of the world has let me down. 
the things that seemed so promising, money and jobs and relationships, maybe doctors, have all failed. But Jesus... I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm hopeless. Powerless is how we approach Jesus. And not just for some temporal miracle, but for spiritual power, renewal, and hope. We come to the foot of the cross. Does this story convey that God can do anything? He can raise the dead. He can heal the affliction. Yes, However, the greatest lesson comes from the power of faith. The power of faith in God to make the unclean clean, the impure pure, the restoration and regeneration of the soul to God's family. Why? Because He calls this unnamed woman, hear what He calls her in the story, daughter. That's powerful. He grants the powerless power. Did you hear that word? Daughter. Women in the room, in Christ, Jesus looks at you and He says, daughter. Men in the room, in Christ, Jesus looks at you and He says, son. What does that mean? Family. You're in the family of God. He grants the powerless power and He brings them into His family. He gives them the family name. He calls them daughters and sons. Posture and profession of faith. Number two. Posture and profession of faith. How do we come to Jesus? Do we come boasting of our own works? Our own power? No. We come humbly. Look at at Jairus. We're going to skip around a little bit here. Part of 5.22 and then part of 36. Jairus coming to Jesus and seeing Him what? He fell at his feet. Is he desperate? Desperately needs Jesus. Jesus says this to him. After he finds out that his daughter has died because Jesus has been dilly-dallying around healing other people, making his way to go and help Jairus' daughter, Jesus tells him this, Do not fear what? Only believe. Only believe. And now the woman, she had heard the reports about Jesus, came up behind him in the crowd. Listen to that posture. She came up behind him and touched his garment. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, I love this, now face to face with Jesus, no longer slinking behind, but she's face to face with God in the flesh how valuable human life is to Christ, to God, face to face. Knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, and I love this, and told him the whole truth. Jesus, this is what you have done for me. She declares that. And he said to her, again, beautiful, beautiful words, daughter, your faith has made you well daughter. Posture and profession of faith. These two individuals make clear their belief in Jesus because they both come in humble positions. Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus, risking everything 
And the woman, so ashamed, so alienated, so desperate, crawls from behind and touches his garment only to be restored and to be face to face with God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And Jesus looks in her eyes and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. What a powerful picture of how we, followers of Christ, come to the cross. Desperate. The world has given us no hope, no answers, no peace, no purity, nothing. It's only stripped us of any shred of dignity and has left us powerless. But power is in our midst. Through the person and work of Jesus. And we receive Jesus and His power when we humbly come before His throne. And all we have to do is believe. Believe. Believe in what Jesus has done for us. I remember uh, in junior high, junior high and high school, I struggled a lot with a fear of man type of attitude. What do I mean by that? Not that I was scared of people, but that I wanted people to like me. I wanted people to think I was cool. Because I wasn't cool. I was just kind of the chubby kid that sat in the back of the room. And so my parents, uh, for a couple years, we took in a, a foster kid who was a couple years older than me. I was in probably seventh grade at the time. He was a freshman. High schoolers are always cooler than junior hires, right? So I thought this guy was the coolest guy in the world. One of my very, very close friends. But since he was in, uh, in and out of home so many times, he had lived a life. You get what I'm saying? He had seen some things, but I looked up to him and I wanted him to accept me and I wanted him to think I was cool. And so one day I'm walking home after school. I told my kids I walked uphill both ways in the snow, but there's no snow in California, so I was just kidding. So I'm walking home and there's a, another kid, probably eighth grade, maybe ninth grade, walking on the other side of the road smoking a cigarette. I'm like... Now, I would be really cool if I invited this kid over to my front porch and me and my foster brother and all three of us could kick it on the front porch and smoke a cigarette together. That is automatic coolness right there, right? So it's about three in the afternoon. My father never, ever, ever came home before five from work. My mom was gone at work also. We had plenty of time to sit on the front porch and enjoy gagging on this smoky stick. So we're sitting on the front porch, and I go to take this first drag of the cigarette, and it's coming to my lips, and I see along the head, we had this hedge across the, the front of our yard, and I hear my dad's pickup truck as he comes around the corner and drives into the driveway right as I'm taking the little drag off the cigarette. And the smoke fills the porch. And immediately I threw that thing as far as I could and I ran for my life. I ran a few, a few blocks away. It was hot and sweating. Kind of hid in the bushes for a little bit, maybe a couple hours. Trying to figure out what in the world am I going to do because not only is my, my dad's going to beat me, but also... My mom, growing up in the home of a smoker, 
had such a distaste for cigarettes and smoking that I was certain that my dad would flog me, but when she came home, I was going to be completely crucified for doing that. I was at death's door. And so after a few hours, I started making my way home. Kind of the posture of, you know, when someone kicks your dog and you're, you're just kind of slumped over. Let's say humbled, to say the least. I got to go before my dad. And so I walk in the door. My shoulders are down. My head's down. And I go to my dad, and I say, I'm really sorry for what I did. And he uttered those words that you never want to hear as a boy. He said, son, I'm really disappointed in you. Like, dad, just beat me. Please, don't say that. But he said something right after that. As I was, in a sense, humbled before him, he goes, I know how much this would devastate your mother, and so I'm not going to tell her. I'm not going to tell her what you did. I'll carry that. He goes, but if you ever do that again, you're all hers, and she's going to kill you, so you better not do that. Posture. We come before the Lord with our heads bowed at His greatness, seeking forgiveness, placing our faith in Him. It was the same. I came before my dad. If I go before my dad and say, hey, I'll do whatever I want to do. No, I'm getting thrown to the wolves. Come humbly before Him. And He forgave me for what I did, and He even stripped the consequence that time. Needless to say, I never did that again. We see in this story skeptics. We see skeptics in the story. Jesus' disciples are somewhat skeptical, right? When, when Jesus starts asking who has touched him, what is their response? And they're like, seriously, Jesus? You see where we're at? Everybody's pressing on you, the crowd's coming. Like, come on, man. This dude's daughter's dying. We've got to get to where we're going. But Jesus has an appointment. He has something to teach everybody. And Jesus shows the disciples grace there. He continues to bring them along with him, even though they're kind of mocking him in their voice. And here else, that Jesus arrives at Jairus' house. There's, there's mourners there. You see, in this culture... Culturally, uh, the Jews would hire professional mourners for funerals. Did you guys know that? They would hire professionals to come in and play music and to weep and wail along with them in their loss. And so the professionals have arrived. So what does that mean? This girl is dead, dead. Because the professionals have been brought in to mourn for her loss. And they scoff at Jesus when, he, when Jesus exaggeratingly states that the girl, he's like, hey, chill out, mourners. Chill out, professionals. She's just sleeping a second. I'll handle this. So we see this, the skeptics of Christ even in this story here. But here's the bottom line. This is something I want you to walk away with because we can look at this story and we can say, well, if I only have enough faith, God's going to heal me of this affliction, or maybe God can raise a, a dead relative that I have back to life. You see, people have made that mistake. Can God do miraculous things? Yes. Many of us have seen God 
in our own lives and people that we know, God do miraculous things that the doctors can't explain. But here, we also have a greater promise. It's His, his promises are this, they're greater than just temporal healing. They're greater than just the temporal healing that we see in this passage. Praise God He heals this woman and restores her to community. Praise God that He raises Jairus' daughter from the dead as a picture of resurrection. The picture of the power of God. But it's easy to lose sight of what we have gained through Christ, which is right relationship with God, favor with our Father. He calls us daughters, sons and daughters especially when affliction or difficult circumstances hit and God does not act in the way that you or I think he should, right? You ever find yourself negotiating with God? Like, God, I, I tell you what, I know you have a plan, but I have a plan too, and I think mine might be a little bit better. I think you should go along with what I'm telling you to do because it's going to make me feel better. It's going to make me look better. And so it's hard when difficult circumstances hit and we read a passage like this and we say, God, how come you haven't done those types of things in my life? Well, he has. He's made you unclean or clean spiritually through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. He's resurrected you to new life. We've all been there in the difficult circumstances. I've taken part in prayer for miraculous healing and I only can think of just a few instances in my life where I could say, God truly in that moment, like God intervened miraculously because it's completely unexplained. I had a friend at Redeemer Church in Apple Valley, my last church, who had a brain mass. And it was so confirmed that they had placed bolts in his head so that they could put a halo on his head to hold the instruments to shoot radiation into his brain to shrink that tumor. They were at that point. The next day, so it's a Sunday night, we had a worship gathering at the church. He asked for prayer after the worship gathering because on Monday he was going in with the halo on his head to have radiation be shot into his brain. So we prayed over him. God, would you miraculously heal our friend Dylan. And then we did the same thing. But if it's your will that you don't, next day we get a call. He went to the doctor. Gets his last scan to figure out where exactly the tumor is so they can aim the radiation right at the right spot. Tumor's gone. He's been healed. And the doctors, of course, oh, we don't know what happened. We can't explain this. I can think of another friend that escaped the, the jaws of death with cancer. She was assured that she was going to die within a few months. She's still alive. This was 12 years ago. So God does, I want to affirm that, God does work in miraculous ways, but miracles are called miracles for a reason because they don't happen that often. Again, everybody that Christ came in contact with wasn't healed physically of their affliction. I came to grips with this with, in successive years, praying for my mother to be healed 
and she didn't. She suffered and died. The next year, praying for my father-in-law to be healed of cancer, he didn't. He suffered, and he passed on. And they both are in the presence of Christ. Praise God. God chose not to heal their temporary affliction. But God still works to heal and to bring dead things to life spiritually. And so I want to give you that hope. Just because God hasn't fixed whatever ailment that you have doesn't mean that He doesn't love you. He calls you, what? Sons and daughters. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Again, His promises are greater than mere temporal healing. The girl in the story is raised from the dead. Beautiful. Okay? But she did not at this time receive the resurrection body. Okay? You can't go out and find this girl walking around today. Why? Because she eventually died. She didn't get her glorified heavenly body. That awaits. Because her physical healing was just temporal. A demonstration of what Jesus had done for her spiritually and a demonstration of what the kingdom of God is like. It was a demonstration of what the kingdom of God is like. That eventually there will be no more death, no more hurt, no more pain, no more affliction, no more ailments. And it was a demonstration of this. He gave a dead thing new life. He gave a dead thing new life. Man, am I the only one in here? Did you guys hear what I said there? He gave a dead thing new life. That's a miracle right there because He did that for you in Christ. The woman dead to her society, made clean and restored. She's given new life. Did her healing mean that she never had another monthly cycle or that she never suffered from something else? No! I'm sure she had plenty of issues within her life. It's not the main point of the story. The main point is that Jesus, hear this, through faith gives power to the powerless. He restores brokenness. And most importantly, He restores us spiritually into fellowship with His Father. Again, I'm going to beat this into your head. Sons and daughters. Family. He says this, Daughter, your faith has made you well. I love this next statement. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Peace here is so important. And our English word peace just does no justice to what Christ is talking about in this moment. The original language is more rich. The concept of Jesus' statement here is this word, shalom. And shalom is an all-encompassing peace. Jesus has given her shalom. It's way more than peace. It's restoration. It's new life. It's rest in what God has done for you. Can anybody relate to shalom? Shalom in Christ. And one day, 
When Christ returns, this whole earth is going to be under shalom. There's not going to be differences between people dividing. There's not going to be murder. There's not going to be death. There's not going to be affliction. Because Christ will return and heaven and earth will meet and all things will be made new, perfect, sinless, just as God intended it. And we get a glimpse of that in salvation in Jesus Christ. That He brings dead things to new life. That He gives us shalom. He gives us peace with God. This woman has been made whole through faith in Christ. Mark 5, 41 to 43. This is the girl now. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. A picture of this resurrection. This is what Jesus does for you spiritually. He says to you, follower of Christ, arise. Arise. You see, you're not Jesus in the story. We read these stories sometimes and I, I want to be Jesus. I want to be the, peop, the person out there healing people and raising people from the dead. But we're not. We're the hopeless father in desperation at the feet of Jesus seeking His help. You're the unclean woman sneaking up behind Jesus to just touch His garment. All of us were the dead child. No power. No ability to live. Dead. So dead that the professional mourners had come in and started weeping and wailing. But Jesus. Jesus comes in. And those who are desperately at His feet, the woman, the man, and the child that just laid there lifeless, what did Christ do? He raised them the new life. Through the power of faith. God grants power to the powerless. Those who desperately fall at His feet, they come with their impurity, they're powerless to live. Jesus saves them, and that's all for His glory. And faith is the vehicle that He uses. Christian in the room this morning, I want you to remember this. Remember the power of Christ. So often we get caught up in everything that's going on around us. We get anemic in our faith. Remember the power of Christ to raise dead things to life and revisit that each and every day. It's the reason why we preach the gospel, so that we're reminded of what Christ has done for us, that He came and He lived the perfect life, that He died a criminal's death on the cross, but that He didn't stay dead, but He resurrected to new life. Remember the power of Christ. Remember this. Remember the disappointment of the world. The skeptics around you who scoff at your faith and your transformation... Look to Christ. Continually fall at His feet with trembling 
and declaring the truth of what Jesus has done for you. That's what that woman did. She told Jesus what he had done. And that's what we're called to do. We fall before the feet of Jesus and we get up and we tell people what Jesus has done for us. For all of those around you to hear. Skeptic in the room. I say this out of love. Apart from Christ, you are dead and impure. You're not able or worthy to stand before the throne of God. You will be judged according to your works. But Jesus, if you place your faith and trust in the work of Christ, His perfect life, death, and resurrection, if you believe that, you will be saved. You will be a dead thing brought to life. A new creation in Christ. What did Jesus tell Jairus? Believe. I invite you, skeptic, stop scoffing at the work of Christ and believe in the new life that He can bring you. In just a few minutes, as the band makes their way back up on stage, we're going to receive a communion.